um, instead of a book study on Wednesday nights, because I know typically it's a little bit shorter message, because then you can go off in your groups and pray. And, and matter of fact, I think that's pretty cool. Pretty cool. We used to do that at First Baptist when I was a member at First Baptist. I know the, the pastor would either have me or he would do a you know, 15, 30-minute devotional, and then they would go off to different parts of the church, maybe pray about that Sunday school room or whatever. And I think that's great because I really had some good times with two or three guys. We would just get alone and, and surrender to God, whatever was on our heart. At the same time, it builds a lot of camaraderie, a lot of fellowship that's important. Because uh, typically when I was in churches when there was a prayer meeting is we would go through a laundry list, which is fine. You've got to have a list. You've got to know what you're praying about. We'd go through the laundry list, and I'd say, okay, well, right now I'm going to open the floor for anybody that wants to pray. And after everybody prays, then I'll close this in prayer. And then I kind of bow my head, and there might be one person out of 30, and all of a sudden I go, I'm like, okay, we'll pause about 30 seconds. Uh, Dearly Father, so it wasn't much of a prayer meeting. Uh, now, when I was at Valley View, it was a little bit different. We actually had prayer meetings on Saturday sometimes, but uh, when Miss Betty was there and Bill. But what I'm going to do tonight, we're going to be uh, only, we're only going to be in two books of the Bible, Isaiah 44 and Psalm chapter 8. And I'm going to get turned there myself to Isaiah 44. And what I'm doing is just something, um, when I pastored in Kentucky, they wanted to have something for the youth on Sunday nights before church. And they were limited on funds, which is fine. Um, get turned there myself. And as they were limited on funds, uh, they couldn't buy curriculum. And of course, I knew I could teach them the Bible, you know, but I wanted something that they could take home with them, just like a little kid with a Bible verse or something. So what I did is one of the members that was... Um, um, helped us move into the parsonage. He was real handy. He was real, real maintenance kind of guy. And in 1999, you know, the internet was like a big deal. And I'm like, well, we don't need internet. He goes, oh, yeah, you're going to get, I'll let you use mine for a while. So, so I started searching stuff like for catechisms, you know, like the Charles Hatton Spurgeon catechism, you know, things that were free that you could print off. And what I found was, um, I've still got a copy of it. Uh, it's, uh, I just printed it off. It's a Benjamin Keach. He was a Baptist preacher back in the 1600s. He was part of that 1689 Baptist confession. But anyways, he or someone compiled a catechism from him. So what I did with those youth, and then the youth that I had at Simple Southern Baptist that I would meet on Sunday nights, there was about 15 of them. It was just me and 15 teenagers, you know. And, uh, but, but, I, but what I did is I took these old English words, and I just reworded them more modern English of questions and answers, and then we would study the scriptures that prove that answer. You know, what a concept. And so what was interesting is there I was using something very free, very old, been around forever as a, as a tool to teach children, adults, or just learn the Bible yourself and doctrine. And what was interesting, what I thought was interesting, uh, that, that, year and, that year and two months I was in Kentucky, and the three or four years that we did it there at, at my Wassa. Uh, community center campus we would just meet in the lobby area and sit around tables they would bring snacks and stuff because they a lot of these kids other than my youngest son were not even churched I mean maybe they've been to church off and on but they would eat it up like candy because I'd throw out a question not that I'm gonna do it here but I would throw out this question and let them maybe either you know make a guess or what they think and and that's okay well those are some good answers now let's look at the answer and we'd look at the answer 
And then we'd look at these two verses that we're going to look at. And, uh, of course, I rewrote this one. I'm not reusing or rehashing anything. But I used a catechism to teach them on Sunday nights. And what was interesting, in that three, three to four years we did that on Sunday nights at the Owasa campus, there were kids, in, and I had kids from age 9 to 18 in that class. And I kept their attention because they just, they, the, well, I always thought about that question. Or the, the question caused them to really think deeply about eternal things. And it was just kind of cool. So in those three to four years, out of that 9 to 18-year-old's, we saw about five or six of them come up to me after class while they're eating cookies and everything. Uh, Pastor Steve, I, I think I need to get saved. Oh, that's good. And then we'd counsel for a while. And we didn't have a baptistry at the community center. So at that time, Maranatha Baptist, uh, our brother Mosby was, and Tanya Stevenson, they would let us come on Sunday nights and baptize. But we had about three or four of those young, mostly young men, profess Christ. And the cool thing is, is, once that four years was over, it's like some of them didn't start coming anymore. You know why? They were coming with grandma because they lived in Uligaw to Owasso. And now that they got saved and they were learning something, also they began to get engaged in their church in their own town. So they didn't come anymore. And originally some members, well, the kids aren't coming. I said, no, they're, they're going. They're right where they need to be. And pretty soon it was just me and Joey. So me and Joey would have Bible study at house. And so it just kind of, it, it, it worked at cycle. And I think it's good. So well, I'm going to try this on Wednesday nights for a while. So we're going to be looking at Isaiah 44, uh, verse 6 through 8. And we're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. And this is, uh, this is the question tonight for our study. And, and all I've done is just reworded so it may not be exactly everything he intended, Benjamin Keach. If you ever look at, the, look at the picture of that guy, look at the hair on that guy. He's got curls, doesn't he? Got curls in his hair. Yeah, probably has a wig. Yeah, thank you, brother. <laughs> I need one. I know that guy back there does. Oh, he's shaking his head. No, yeah. But um, th this is the question that I that I rewrote it as: Who is the best, most, and only preeminent being of all beings? And I worded something similar to that when I was with these teenagers. They, oh, wow, I don't know. They might say uh, something like, well, is it, is, it, uh, is it the Incredible Hulk? You know, they were getting into Marvel, all these beings. They didn't know. They had no idea. So I said, well, think about it. I said, spiritually, I said, in the Bible, from the Bible, who is the best, most, and only preeminent or first being of all beings? In other words, out of everything that, that, of God's creatures, including human beings, who's the greatest of all beings? that could ever exist in the universe of all time. And they would sit there, and they had all kinds of questions that got beyond the Marvel stuff. Pretty soon they were talking about presidents, maybe, and just, they had no idea, other than Joey knew where I was going. Well, I gave them the answer. I said, God is the best, most, and preeminent first being that's over all other beings, who reveals himself clearly, and pursues a redemptive relationship with mankind. And all of a sudden, they're just sitting there like drooling. They'd never heard anybody talk to them like that. And I'm like, I'm using words. But they're words that were tried and true on teaching Bible doctrine about God and things. Things that have been around for a long time. Not just in the Catholic Church, not just in the Lutheran Church. It was right there in the Baptist Church because he was a Baptist minister. 
he was one of the first Baptist ministers to ever introduce hymns to the Baptist church. You know, they used to read, they used to sing psalms. They would put music to these psalms here in the Bible. He introduced hymns. It was probably the cutting edge thing. So when I saw these kind of tools, and I also have a C.H. Spurgeon catechism, and of course, C.H. Spurgeon does have some history with this guy as far as, you know, being in that area and everything. But it's just good, simple tools of doctrine or about God. And so one, one of my favorite books I, I read occasionally because it's very, it's 1845 English, my John L. Dagg, one of the founding fathers of the Southern Baptist Convention. And, of course, everything's Roman numeral and everything. But it's a very good book to read to begin to understand theology, systematically, doctrine, however you want to call it. But to me, the catechism is just so pithy, it's so quick. Um, and you can repeat it, repeat it, repeat it. You can systematically approach it. And so that's the question, that's the answer. Well, how do we know that answer is true? Well, we've got to go to Scripture, right? Just like if we had a Baptist faith and message and said, in chapter 1, this is what we believe about the Scriptures, and it articulates what Southern Baptists believe about Scriptures. We don't want to stop there and say, well, that's just what we believe. Because David's going to say, well, why do you believe that? Oh, well, huh, thank you, David. That's why the Scriptures are there, so we can, this proves what we say we believe. So it's not just something we go, here, this is what we believe. Here, this is what we believe, how we articulate what we believe from the Bible when you hand it to somebody. And all of a sudden, they can begin to grasp some things biblically about scriptures, God, Jesus, justification, sanctification, justification. I used a Baptist faith and message in a Sunday school class once. I had curriculum for three years because we'd stay in one chapter forever because you just go through every scripture. And they were just eating it up. But you know why? Because we're reading scripture. They weren't just saying, thus saith the Sunday school quarterly and move around and tell me your opinion, what I think. And they, they were actually studying the scripture and, and letting iron sharpen iron and looking it up to see if it is so. But in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6 through 8, I'm going to read those verses to prove that God is that best, most preeminent being out of all other beings and how he reveals himself for the very purpose of having a relationship, a redemptive relationship with mankind. And so let me read Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6 through 8. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. And who can proclaim it as I do? Let, them have, let him, then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people, in other words, I, I started it from the beginning, right? The ancient civilizations and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show, them, show these to me. In other words, who else could do that besides me? Verse, verse 8, do not fear, do not be afraid. Have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Is there any other God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. So the first thing we obviously see in this verse is God is the only God. He's the only one, and he's the only one that can set everything into, into play and everything. So I wrote these little three captions down. 
of what he was saying there in verse 68 concerning being the best, most, and preeminent, the first of all beings. There is no other God in eternal time or history like God. That's the first thing we find out. Because he said there, thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Now we know there's other scriptures that talk about he is the God above all other gods, little g, right? Because there are other gods out there, other idols, whatever you want to call them, you know, powers, not just deities, but I mean, your job can become a god, anything can become an idol. And he says, therefore, don't put anything before God, between you and God. And so when he's saying this, there is no other God, and then the other Bible verse says he's the God above all other gods, it's not contradicting itself. What he's saying is, is the reason he is the God above all other, all other gods, if you want to call them gods, little g, is because he's the one and only true God. Worthy of worship, worthy of trust, worthy for life itself. So he says, in the history of time, to the ancient peoples and everything, there is no other God in eternal time or history like God. Nothing. Nothing. When I first got saved, all I knew is I was, I was saved, I was happy, uh, you know, I'd gone from that great depression of self-pity and suicidal thoughts to now life is worth living and everything. And, and I, w I went to a Tulsa Roughneck game one night back when the Roughnecks were still playing because uh, I played men's soccer. And I was sitting there uh, on the west side by the south end zone where all my little soccer buddies would, would come that I played with. And, and some of them knew that I had this new faith. This other guy, he was curious about it. His name was Sam. And I'm sitting there rooting on the Roughnecks, you know, Charlie Mitchell and all those guys and different ones. And we're, ah, Roughnecks, you know. This is before they won their big national title uh, or after they won it in 82. But anyway, so all of a sudden Sam just kind of scoots over by me. I said, you know, Sam, some space here, man. I'm watching the game, you know. And we're all with our, we got our rugby style little uniforms on. Probably look like nerds out there, wannabe Roughnecks. And he said, Steve, I got a question. I said, what? He goes, they tell me you have a Bible in your pocket. I said, that's a little green Bible that someone handed to me at NUANM when I left the dorm, you know, drunker than Cooter Brown. And I said, yeah, I'll take it and put it in my pocket. I said, but when I got saved, it's in my pocket all the time. He says, can I read it? I was like, okay, now I need to scoop it out. Yeah, yeah, you can read it. So he was reading it during the game. But after, and I don't know what he was reading it for. I don't know what he was looking for. This little green, you know, New Testament Psalms and Proverbs. King James Version. But after the game, he handed it back to me, and he, and he said, thank you for letting me read. I don't know what he read. I said, what'd you read? He goes, oh, don't worry about it. Okay. So we get done, and we all go to Ken's or something like that, and they're, they're drinking, and I'm just drinking pop and eating pizza, and we're having fun and everything. He says, would you like to come to my appointment, uh, my apartment after the game? I said, yeah, I'll go visit your apartment. I didn't see his apartment that he got. He just moved out, and he was doing construction carpentry work. And we get into his living room. Of course, I still have my little Green Gideon's Bible in my back pocket because I carried it everywhere. It wasn't a lucky rabbit's foot. It was just that was my life. You know, that's what I was reading. That's what I was growing from because I knew God now. I knew he was the one and only true God. And all of a sudden, I heard him turn on the record player, and he starts playing records backwards. He gets out this Necronomicon book and everything. 
And he says, well, where I was reading in your Bible, he read something in the Bible. I guess it refers to whatever, you know, I said, okay. I said, well, listen, I said, Sam, I said, I don't know what all you're talking about. I really don't. I said, I, I, you know, I, and I told him, I said, all I know is the one and only true God sent his one and only son and has saved me from my sins, and he can save you, Sam. He says, okay, I guess you don't want to talk. I said, no, I don't want to talk about witchcraft and, and taking pills and spinning in chairs. I, I don't want to talk about that. I said, but I do know this. I said, I'm going to leave here. I said, because I want to be part of this because other people were showing up and was having a party. I said, my church starts at 11 o'clock at Central Baptist, their own Second and Birch or wherever it was, uh, the old Central. And I said, you're invited to go. If you need me to pick you up, I'll pick you up tomorrow morning. He goes, okay, pick me up. So I told him what time I'd pick him up. And I took him to church. I remember we went to Sunday school, just like I did when my friend took me to church, and we sat in the same second pew over here where I could say amen to Brother Bob Atwood preaching and everything. And during the invitation time, he went to the altar, so I went up there with him. And I don't, he was, he was talking to something weird. I mean, it was, it was just weird stuff. Somehow he had mixed that Bible, the Necronomicon, or whatever else he was in. And I looked at him, I said, Sam, there's only one true God. And I didn't know that was a saying. I just believed it. And I told him it was through Jesus Christ. And he walked out. He was nice. He was friendly. But now I haven't seen Sam to this day. I don't know where he's at. And I, it concerns me. Because he grew up in the church just like I did. Church environment anyways, you know. But right here in the text, God is saying, out of all the history of mankind, out of all eternity, there is no other God in eternal time or history like God. He also says, there is no other God in eternal time or history who is reliable. Reliable. Because he says, if you know of any other God, tell them to tell me what they've done because I've been pretty reliable. Have you ever noticed how God has order to everything? And anytime things are out of order or chaotic, it's because Satan somehow has perverted whatever was in order. Whether it's uh, gender nowadays, kids are confused. I remember teasing a girl one time. This was just right after same-sex marriage. I was just teasing her. I was dropping Joey off to go to False Creek. He was one of her classmates. And I said, Michaela, I need a kitty litter box. She goes, why? Steve, they called me Papa Smurf. I said, why Papa Smurf? I said, I feel like a kitty today. And they all laugh. Well, now that's what people, I'm a unicorn, I'm a whatever. They just, whatever they want to be. They can't just be different genders. But you know what? Our God is reliable. He's reliable on truth. Uh, he's reliable about male and female, everything. I mean, you just read it. He's God of order. He's reliable. Out of all history and all eternity, he's the only God, no other God like him, and he's reliable. Reliable not only in character, obviously, but to tell you the truth. He's not a man that he should lie. There is no other God in eternal time or history who is trustworthy. Who is trustworthy. My friend was seeking something. I don't know what he was seeking. He was seeking through some lot of weird psychedelic stuff. But all I know is between my preacher and whatever I could tell him, we told him the truth. God the one, God's the one that's trustworthy. This book is trustworthy. I don't know what you're using that book to interpret this book or whatever you were doing, but this is the only book that God's given us to give us a trustworthy word or, or information or revelation. So he says there in Isaiah 44 about this 
this God, this, this one and only God who is the best, most, and only preeminent first being out of all other beings, he's saying, out of all creation and everything, I am the only God. There's no other God but me. I created anything. Any, anybody else that's created anything, let them speak up because I'm the one that did it. And he says, therefore, do not be afraid. Why, why would he say that? Because they lived in a world where there was many views about all kinds of gods, polytheism and everything, you know, many gods and everything. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I have told you from, from that time, and in other words, from the beginning of man time, I've told you, and I've declared it to you. Therefore, what does he want us to do? You're my witnesses. Of what? That he's, he's the only, there's no God like him. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. You're his witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. So when we ask that question, who is the best, the most, the only preeminent first being out of all beings? It's only God. Because in eternal history and time, there's no God like him. There's no other God like him. There's no God that's reliable like him. There's no God that's trustworthy like him. He can be trusted. He's reliable because he's God. He's God. And nothing else is or no one else is. Then I'd like you to turn to Psalm chapter 8, kind of prove our point again that he is the, the most, the best, the only preeminent first being out of all beings. And you're probably familiar perhaps with uh, Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. Still sporting this new Bible flipping around. So my red ink pen comes in handy when I get to mark it up. Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. I took some youth to Falls Creek one, well, it took them several years, but one year, you know, you got to create these t-shirts, right? You know, and so I think that was one of their themes. There was their Psalm chapter 8. It might have been a discipleship year or whatever. So I was supposed to create or at least create an idea for some kind of t-shirt. And it was when the X-Files was all on the cutting edge of, of TV and everything, which is paranormal and aliens and all kinds of weird stuff. And so... We use that X-File um, theme in the sense of that word excellent. You know, we said, you are the, I can't remember what the phrase was, but it used the word excellent, and of course, it kind of pun the X-Files, but it just referred to how God was the most excellent. He was the greatest. He was the most perfect. He was the, the most stupendous or majestic. And he says there in Psalm chapter 8, verse 1, that he, first of all, it says, he is the personal God because he says, O Lord, what? Our Lord. That's pretty personal. He's not always saying, O Lord, who is sovereign, but our Lord, who is sovereign. He's my Lord. Just like the, the shepherds uh, of Psalm 23 says, the Lord is my shepherd. It refers to a very personal relationship. And about my shepherd, he said things about my shepherd. Okay? That way he knew he could dwell in the house of the Lord forever with his shepherd. And he says that this, this God, this, this God that is excellent, he is a personal God. O Lord, O sovereign one, 
You are our sovereign one. You're personal. He is a personal God. He is not only a personal God, but he's a personal sovereign God over all. Over all, because he says, our Lord. And he's referring to a sovereign Lord, not just Lord that's the the head man or the man upstairs. He's talking about a sovereign God. And at my other church there at Midway, when I used that word sovereign God, a lady raised her hand on Wednesday night. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, I can't give you the, I guess, the, the seminary definition. I said, but basically to say God is sovereign means he does what he wants, what he wants, however he wants, with whomever he wants. She said, God can do that? I don't know if I like that. I said, well, I said, that is a scary statement. Only if you don't understand that God is perfect, he's not, preg- you know, he, he's not partial. So because he's perfect, he can handle that kind of power, right? He can handle it because he's perfect. He'll never make a mistake. He won't do anything out of, well, I just don't like Valor anymore, so then God changes him. No, he's sovereign and he's holy, so he can handle that kind of power. Uh, let's just say that you change the bylaws, David changed the bylaws in our next business meeting, the pastor is sovereign to do what he wants, when he wants, however he wants, with whomever he wants. That is scary, number one, because I know myself. And number two, I'm human. And I might be real good sovereign pastor for a while, and then pretty soon, you know, I head off the wheels, right? Because I'm human. I'm, I'm tainted. I'm corrupted by sin. Or maybe I'm prejudiced about something or whatever it may be, and therefore I make, but because God is a sovereign, holy God, he can, he can handle that kind of power. And that's what he's saying about this most, best, preeminent, first of all beings. He is a personal and he is a sovereign God over all because he's perfect. And we need to know that in concerning this one and only true God. He is not only a personal God who is a sovereign God over all. He is a personal and sovereign God over all who has revealed himself to be made known because it says, O Lord, sovereign Lord, our sovereign Lord, personal, how excellent is your name in all the earth. In other words, your reputation is excellent throughout all the earth. And how did he do that? Who have set your glory above the heavens. In other words, it's like Romans 1 where it says, the skies reveal, we talked about that in Psalm 19 that one time, the skies reveal his invisible attributes, therefore man is without excuse that there is an excellent one. There is a sovereign one. There is one who they can know who is sovereign. And so when we ask that question, who is the best, most, or only preeminent first being above all beings? That's why after these verses we can say, well, it's God. God is the best, the most, the preeminent first being over all other beings. Now, now listen, you're important too, right? You know, did you know Ken right here? He was made in the image of God, the likeness of God. God fearfully and wonderfully made him in his mother's womb, and yet before he was ever formed, God knew him. So we're part of God's special creation, the human being is, isn't it? Whether you're saved or not, that's why we ought to respect people because they're made in the likeness of God. And, the, and if we insult them, we're insulting God. You're special in that sense. But yet at the same time, who is the most preeminent out of all beings? Although man was that 
that part of creation that gave us stewardship and responsibility over all other creature creatures. Well, then who gave us that power? Whoever gave us that responsibility? The sovereign one. He is the most best, preeminent, first over all beings. But it says he reveals himself clearly in the heavens, let alone the scriptures, like we learned in Psalm 119, 119 or 19, through us. He reveals himself and he pursues a redemptive relationship with people. How do we know that? Well, just go back to the Garden of Eden. The moment they disobeyed in the most perfect situation, the first thing God did is he panicked. No, he didn't. For man's benefit, he says, where are you? He knew exactly where they were, but for their benefit, he called out to them, and we're over here. And God knew exactly what they did, but he said, what did you do for their benefit? Now, he told them what they did, and then they started the blame game. You know, it just went crazy from there. The point is, is that God could have left them right there. He could have said, well, they disobeyed me. They ate that fruit, but I told them not to. I told them they would die. He could have left them there, but he pursued them for a relationship, and then he shed blood to cover their nakedness, to, to, to cause that relationship to be reconciled. So we know that according to Isaiah 44, 6 through 8, Psalm 8, Psalm 8, verse 1, that it is God who is the best, the most, the preeminent, the first of all other beings. It is God. And thank God he is. Amen. Because you wouldn't want me to be the sovereign. I wouldn't want you to be sovereign either. You know why? Because I know you're just as tainted as I am. Or you'll have a bad day. You know, God don't have bad days. He don't go on vacation. Uh, he don't have any PTO, you know, personal time off. You know, that's what's interesting. He, he took six days to create everything. On that last day, of course, he said, it's all very good. And then it said he rested on the seventh day. Do you think God took a nap? No, he just rested from his creative power. And he held everything into place. He was still at work because God never sleeps. He doesn't slumber. So when we think about this preeminent, this first of all beings being God, because the scripture says he is, this would be our threefold testimony that he said we give. Our threefold testimony concerning God being the first, the most, the best, the preeminent of all beings. We could look at someone like my friend over there at the altar and I would say, Sam, He's the one only true God because God is eternal. God is reliable, Sam. God is knowable, Sam. He's eternal, he's reliable, and he's knowable. That's basically what I was telling my friend. Maybe not in those fancy words, but I was trying to tell him, he's the answer. I don't know what you're seeking out, buddy, to all this psychedelic and everything, but he's the answer. Because I was just a brand new Christian, but I knew that I knew that I knew what I was talking about. I just didn't know how to say it. And so when we think about this, as we, as we fix the head out to our, our, our small prayer groups, knowing that he is the preeminent, the first, the, the most, out of all other beings, he's eternal, he's reliable, and he's noble, then maybe we need to ask these kinds of questions during our prayer. Ask ourselves, knowing that God is eternal, and then we begin to pray, well, can we trust him for each day's needs? Well, he's eternal. He's taken everything. He's taken care of everything in eternity past. He, I mean, he was, he is, and always will be, but yet everything to him is just now, all at the same time. That'll, that'll make your head turn to cottage cheese, you know. When you understand it's true, but you're like, 
I can't fathom that because I had a beginning. I got an end. Well, he always has been. He is. And he always will be. Well, at the same time, it's just all now to him because he's God. Knowing that God is eternal, as we pray on our prayer list, can we trust him for each day's needs? Well, we can. Knowing that God is reliable as we pray, can we rely on him and his reputation to act based off our request? Sure we can because he's reliable. He may say yes. He may say no. He may say wait. We may say, Lord, is it this cup? Is it that cup? Is it that cup? And he never answers any of those, but we just say, but just your will be done, not mine. And all of a sudden he does something. We go, wow, he's reliable. He acts, whether it's based off how I request it or not. His will was acted out. He's an act of God. So as we pray, knowing God is eternal, knowing God is reliable, and knowing that God is knowable, can we present him in prayer on the behalf of others that are lost and say, Lord, I got a friend, I got an acquaintance, ran into a Michelle, ran into a Shay. Don't know where they're at, Lord, but I know they don't go to church anywhere, Lord. I know that they're lost, they're blind, they, they can't see. All they saw was a nice man, give them a decent tip and hand them a card and invite them to church. That's all they know, Lord. So, Lord, open their eyes, cause them to have a thirst, cause them to have a hunger. They're dead in their sins. So, Father, awaken their spirit to desire God more than just maybe come to church. Cause them to, that when they get here, they desire God, they want Jesus. Can we... Knowing that God is knowable, can we pray for lost people like that? Absolutely. And that's how we ought to pray for lost people because they are that lost. They are so lost, so dead, so in bondage, so blind, so lame, so deaf that if you and I talk to them till they're blue in the face, I can't make them do that, but I'm planting seeds, I'm leading them, I'm pointing them, and the Spirit of God stirs in a David's heart. And all of a sudden, the light comes on. He goes, whoa, dude, I know what to do. Where do I go? Because that's what happened to me. I grew up in church all my life. And I liked church. We had youth choir and everything. I would sing and have fun and good friends, good fellowship, good pastors. I still remember being four years old. We had just, I was three years old. We had just moved to North Tulsa. And my parents decided to go to Sandusky Avenue Christian Church there on 11th and Sandusky by the University of Tulsa. I was just barely three years old, and we had just moved in that house before vacation Bible school started. And I'm three years old, and Davey Barger, my pastor, comes up in that church bus. You know, I think it was blue. And I ran out there, a little three-year-old, and I get up on the bus. And you know, the first thing I do, I'm watching the youth that are sitting over the wheels. And when you hit them bumps, you can kind of jump up. So I get on that wheel. I'm three years old, go, woo, I'm probably hitting my head on the ceiling. But I'm having fun. And I'm not, I'm not saying that's what it's all about, but because I had fun, because I had a teacher teaching me Bible stories on a flannel board that was all sweet to me, because I had men that would discipline me, because I had a pastor that would sit down with me at the altar with all these little seven-year-old questions that I had that I still didn't understand what he was saying, but he spent time with me. Brother Davy Barger did. And when I was age 21 and the light came on, I was like, whoa. And I would find these people. I would find these Sunday school teachers. I would find them later on in life. Thank you. Thank you for teaching me. Maybe someday, I don't know, this is 
1984 when my friend was at that altar with me. Maybe, I don't know, maybe 40 years later I'll run into him. I don't know. But it sure would be awesome if I did. And he said, man, dude, you know what happened to me? Tell me. It's important that we believe that God is eternal, reliable, and knowable and pray for lost people knowing he's knowable. And unless God opens their eyes and awakens them from the dead, they won't. They won't know him. But at the same time, they can't know him unless we're out heralding, sharing what we know that he's, even if all you know is what I knew, he's the only God, Sam. I don't know what you're doing with the drugs. He's the only God. You need Jesus. That's all I knew to say. But that's all I needed to say at that time because that's where I was at. And I've been praying for Sam ever since. So as we go off to our little, our, our small prayer groups, just think about God being eternal reliable and knowable as you go through that prayer list try to incorporate those concepts because listen that means you're going to be praying to the best the most the preeminent and first of all beings that's who you're talking to and the only reason we can is not because we're desperate to come to God but because we're confident to know that through his blood we have access to God and the Bible says in Psalms, he inclines on his throne to hear the cry of his people. He hears our prayers. So make those requests. Surrender your will, not mine. Take time to say, Lord, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. I mean, struggle with it. That's okay. That means you don't know everything. You know why? Because we're not sovereign, right? So we're going to ask those kind of questions. That's okay. Take time to come before that eternal, reliable, knowable God. Because listen. Someday you'll look back and I'll look back. It may be a week down the road. It may be years down the road. Wow, I remember praying about that. And he acted. He acted only the way God could act. I had a, had a patient one time, little uh, African-American gentleman, 90-plus, lived in Beggs, Oklahoma. He was the first bus, black bus driver to ever drive in Beggs, Oklahoma. He was a deacon at the black church, which was First Baptist, and there was a white First Baptist over here still in 2000-whatever. But I would minister to him. We'd read scripture. We'd talk. We'd pray. But it was my last time to see him before he actually passed away. And I knelt down beside his hospital bed there in his living room and prayed with him. And he said, Preacher? I said, Yes, brother. He said, There's one thing God can't do. Really? He was yep. God's can't fail, brother. Because you trust God, God can't fail. Listen, when you're going to pray to God, God cannot fail. He cannot fail. He'll act. I want to lead us in prayer and then, I guess, dismiss everybody. That's what you do to go to small groups or how do you do it? Well, <laughs> I, mean, I just ought to want to, you know. Okay. Okay, so so the floor is open for some prayer requests.